Well, how do you do? It is the After Show podcast on Mountain Fun Life. I'm Frank Murphy, host of Morning in the Mountains, along with Kira Cup. We did the pre-podcast show earlier today and had a whole lot of fun. In fact, I got a bunch of marshmallow peeps as my as my gift today. So uh, we may still talk more about marshmallowy stuff because one of the things that came out of our program earlier today is that Michelle Allen Yanglin commented and a few of the others wanted to hear my story about marshmallow fluff. And we'll get into why that works. Meanwhile, this is a Facebook Live broadcast that is also being recorded for podcasting. So you'll be able to, I assume, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, you already know that we're on Anchor FM, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and Amazon Echo. You just say, Alexa, listen to the Morning in the Mountains podcast, and we've come right up. So all of those things to listen to the audio portion of it. And I will do my best to remember how to do an audio-only show. <clears throat> that is sarcasm. Meanwhile, um, because we also are on social media and we do rely on you for your likes and shares and comments, I'm going to click like and I'm going to click share and write post and then I will click Frank Murphy, of course. I'll even check in because I'm actually here at Mountain Fun Life. I can say that, that I am, and post that to my friends because I would love for you to do the same thing. That is how we got so many viewers and so many comments earlier today during the pre-podcast show. What happened was I was um, – Kira shared it to her Facebook friends. I shared it to mine, and who then shared it in turn. So we were seeing friends of friends who posted – uh, and commented, we had uh, four full pages of comments on our pre-podcast show, which we did uh, from 10 till 11 o'clock or 10.15 to 11.15 this morning at Mountain Fun Life. Those you can still watch. If you're on Facebook, you know, you can go back and, and watch those again. And we got a nice comment from a guy in St. Louis who came in right at the end of the show and said, love the show. So thank you for that. We appreciate all of those lovely comments. They are like they feed us. You know, it's like like when you go to the zoo and you buy the little handful of pellets to feed to the ducks or the geese or the whomever they let you feed. Oh, you know what's fun is uh, feeding the giraffes at Zoo Knoxville. There used to be a thing where you could go in public to places. And in those olden days, you could go to the zoo because it would be open and uh, you could pay. Was it How much was it? Five dollars. I think it was five dollars to um, to see the. Um, uh, to feed the giraffes is what I think it was. And uh, you got a head of romaine lettuce because apparently the giraffes don't mind the romaine lettuce. I don't care for it myself, but the giraffes were okay with it. And you would peel off the leaves of romaine lettuce and feed them to the giraffes. And it was fun because – actually, I enjoyed it more than my grandson. My grandson, Artie, was only four at the time, I think. And he was probably a little too young. He was excited to see the giraffe. He used to talk to big game. Uh, but when we got up close and the giraffe sneezed on him, which, again, you can't do in the ages of coronavirus, but <laughs> he was rightfully freaked out. And then Grandpa stepped in and uh, finished uh, feeding the giraffe because I'd already paid for the lettuce. So I'd love to see some comments. Say something so that Mountain Fun Life knows you're here. That's me. I'm Mountain Fun Life today. So I've got, I've got to get my cough drops because I'm going to do a lot of talking. I love to talk. But i got to have my, my throat lozenges. And i got my water, all of the above. And um, there's a few things we wanted to talk about in today's show, mostly some follow-up with what we talked about on Morning in the Mountains. And that could be some of the old Hollywood stories that I've got, like how did I end up in Batmobile number one? You know, I told the whole story pretty much with Kira, but if you have any questions about Batmobile number one, why was I in it with my family? 
Well, yeah, that was a fun a fun day, a great day. And then uh, other weird Hollywood stories about um, living out there during the 1990s. And believe me, I'm thankful to be in Tennessee. I've now lived in Tennessee longer than anywhere else in my life. Um, this week, I believe, marks the 18th anniversary of me moving to Tennessee. And I was born in New York and lived there until... I was about 17 or 18. I have to think, look back at the exact date to tell you the truth. But now I'm tied. I've now lived in Tennessee at least as long as I lived in New York, and that included, you know, being an infant. So I have far more memories of my life in Tennessee, and I like it here. You know, as we say, a northerner by birth, southerner by choice. Now, I don't exactly have a drawl yet, but I, I can work on that. <laughs> I can fake one, but... I prefer to have this neutral accent because I don't want to talk in a New York accent either. You know, people laugh when I do the New York accent. So um, those are fun things we can talk about during the course of the show. And I really want to base it on your comments. One of the things that I love to do more than anything, and you're going to say, what is it, Frank, besides talk to yourself? No, actually, my favorite thing, my favorite thing is comedy improv, is improvisation. Of all the things I've done in my life, and I've done radio, I've done television, um, done podcasting, done uh, blogging, done Facebooking and Twittering, done so many different odd things. I've done ballet. I can't dance, but I can I can appear in a ballet as the comedic relief and wear dance shoes and fall down on cue. Of all of the things, improv is my favorite because it's got its tentacles in all of those other things. Improv is at the heart of it, and that lets you do all the other things. So one of the things we do in improv is we ask you to give us any word, and then we have to improvise a, a monologue, if you will, or a scene or anything based on the word. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is marshmallow fluff, which I guess isn't really improv. I'm just going to tell you a story about how I, um, I have a love for marshmallow fluff that goes way back to childhood. And I knew the song about, you know, fluff, 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 make a fluff or nutter, which... I can't remember enough of, except you take the peanut bread and spread it, peanut butter. Anyway, you take the peanut butter and the bread and the fluff, and you make a sandwich out of it, marshmallow, fluff, or nutter. And um, the reason we got on that topic actually starts with the marshmallow peeps. So here's the marshmallow peeps. I don't know if you can hear that. I assume you can. That's the sound of uh, 10 marshmallow peeps, chick shape, the original. And here's another one. I got some purple and I got some pink over here. And... I've always been a fan of Marshmallow Peeps ever since childhood, and I mentioned that I'm actually old enough to remember when they were RODDA, R-O-D-D-A, Marshmallow Peeps. I think <laughs> I could really say I'm old and say they probably made them by hand back at that point, but I don't know. <laughs> but when I was a kid growing up, RADA was the Marshmallow Peep company and eventually got bought out by a company called Just Born that also makes the uh, Mike and Ike candies and things like that. And... Um, we were talking on the show or commenting on the show about the best way to eat a marshmallow peep is to run a stick through it and heat it up over an open flame. Now, if you do a fork, be careful. Make sure that the fork ha is like a car you know, big carving fork or a barbecue fork that it has a wooden handle. You do not want to use a metal fork because it will get hot. So however you do it, you want to uh, stick it through the peeps and just toast them like regular marshmallows, really. That's all there is to it. The difference is that a regular marshmallow has um, cornstarch on the outside, and the marshmallow peep has 
granulated sugar on the outside. And if you know from cooking, granulated sugar will caramelize when you heat it. So you imagine taking a brulee, a creme brulee, and you take a little blowtorch and you, you burn the top of the brulee so that it's got the crunchy sugar crust. Well, you can do that with a marshmallow peep over an open flame. You can do it over a campfire. My daughter sent a comment in. This is where we're going with this, by the way. Uh, that she and the boys, her husband and uh, three sons, had brulee some peeps over their fire pit in the backyard last night. Now, I've done it out of desperation over the gas range in the kitchen. <laughs> it was a rainy night. <laughs> it was a rainy night in Tennessee, and I had some leftover marshmallow peeps, and I, you know, crunched them up there uh, over the gas jet. Now, granted, I had to remove the the thing that the pots sit on, and I knew I and I had to scrub it clean later, so as not to leave a trail of evidence for the ants or anybody else, or the wife. <laughs> but it can be done. But if you're gonna mar- roast marshmallows after a, uh, a cookout, over a whatever, over the old barbecue grill, go ahead and try a peep in there, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I know I'm right. I know it's better. I'm positive that it's better. Well, Kira, Kira Cup, who um, will do the after podcast podcast or the after after podcast i don't really know what we're going to call it i think she's calling it the the after after show podcast because she went to lunch she and i did uh, a full hour of morning in the mountains the ask crank live edition and then she helped me get set up in here we have to rearrange the whole studio so uh santa and mrs claus if you're watching or jim johnson and james gilly or rich haley if you're watching you'll see that i have the advantage of kira's artistic eye She's a wonderful photographer and videographer. So she moved the camera, gave me a better angle. She designed a logo behind me in which I'm outlined in blue, kind of as a joke, because everyone tells me blue makes my eyes pop. But I like to play it up because I think that's funny. And it's kind of true, I guess, right? I'm wearing blue. If you happen to be watching on Facebook Live, what do you think of my eyes? Anyhow, the point of that being that Kira cannot, will not, eat regular marshmallows because she's vegetarian slash vegan. I think she's started vegetarian and she keeps inching closer. Every time I talk to her about it, she seems one step closer to being vegan. You know, she's now avoiding eggs and uh, she's lactose intolerant. So she doesn't like dairy. So she keeps getting closer and closer to veganism and that's fine. But you can't, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or kosher for that matter, you can't eat regular marshmallows because they're not kosher. They're not vegetarian and they're not vegan because they have animal byproduct in there and they have gelatin. So if you like gelatin, uh, you may notice, I think it was the old, was it Nor gelatin? Was the plain unflavored gelatin? Doesn't it have a picture of a cow on it or something? I'll have to Google that. Well, uh, gelatin is made from animals' hooves. I mean, it's, you know, after you have a steak, what do you do with the rest of it? Well, they managed to figure out a way <laughs> to make gelatin with that part, which of course makes it not kosher. I remember one of the very first things I learned about kosher was when I was working at Baskin Robbins. This is back in, no relation to Carol Baskin. This is back in the, oh, I guess the 70s. And they said, oh, you're in New York. Make sure if anyone asks you that they're all, all the ice creams are kosher except Rocky Road. Now, there's been other marshmallow flavors since then. But uh, Rocky Road was the non-kosher ice cream. So they said, if anyone comes in and wants kosher ice cream, do not sell them the Rocky Road. You have to tell them. And I guess everybody really probably already knew that in New York. But um, that's how I learned that marshmallows are not kosher. Ta-da! So Kira doesn't eat them 
because they have animal parts in them. So my daughter Megan gets on there and says, you know, Kira, she commented. And in fact, you could comment too, if you would, just to say hi, and I know you're here. I can see that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a small number, about six or seven of us watching the uh, the After Show podcast here on Facebook to get us started, but it'll go up, the number will go up. Um, if you want to make a comment like, like Megan did, she said, you know, Kira, marshmallow fluff is uh, vegan, which I didn't realize, but I guess it makes sense because it doesn't have to have that gelatinous quality to it. It just has to have the fluffy quality. The, the gelatin, if you think about a marshmallow that has that little, you know, bouncy, bouncy, cushy, cushy, uh, that's the gelatin. Duh, jello, gelatin. So if you take out that part of it and you just have the delicious corn syrupy, sugary, white part of the marshmallow, that is fluff. So fluff is like a gelatin, I mean, excuse me, fluff is like a marshmallow that has no form, has no shape to it. And it comes in, it used to come in jars. And you would take it out and like jelly, I guess, you would spread it on your white bread <laughs> because, you know, God forbid you should use whole grain bread of any kind. <laughs> it has to go on the, the nastiest white bread you could find. And then your plain, you know, smooth peanut butter would go on the other slice and you make it together. That's your fluffernutter sandwich. Now, as a child, I would forget to add the peanut butter and I wanted a fluff sandwich, which can you imagine how did I avoid a sugar coma as a child? That's a question. I have to call my mom. Say, Mom, how did I survive eating grape jelly by the spoonful, marshmallow fluff on white bread? I mean, I don't even know how I made it. What kind of protein did I ever eat? <sighs> and now I've got, you know, grandkids who are exactly the same way. They, if uh, Artie doesn't want to eat something, you give him honey to dip it in. He'll eat Brussels sprouts if you let, if you let him dip it in honey. It's unbelievable. Anyway, um, so marshmallow fluff has been a favorite of mine. And I had, now this is going to sound crazy to you, but I had an internet talk show 20 years ago. I know, right? I mean, today, YouTube turned 15 years old today. And if you go back to 20 years ago, in fact, it was right around this time of year in the year 2000. In the year 2000. What's that, a David Letterman reference? Anyone? Anyone? David Letterman reference? No, Conan O'Brien reference. In the year 2000. Anyhow. So 20 years ago, I had a job at the Comedy World Radio Network, and they had this idea to create a 24-7 network with stand-up comedians doing radio talk shows, and it was supposed to be hilarious. And it was for like the, the first day until the comedians all ran out of material, because <laughs> that's the way stand-up comedy works, is <laughs> you have your set, you've rehearsed your set, you do your set every night in a different town, and you move on. But... I was a radio broadcaster, and I had a, a. I took to it. I thought it was cool. And we had a setup not unlike this. We had a camera, so I was doing a live video uh, show. We had the microphones. It was a live radio show for streaming uh, live on the internet. Plus, we had a FM affiliate in North Carolina. And in addition to that, we also had so uh, live video on the internet, live audio on the internet, live audio on the radio in Hilton Head, North Carolina. We had uh, AM affiliates in Spokane and Reno and Atlantic City, but no one ever called from there. They only ever called from uh, the Carolinas. And then also we had podcasts. So they would take the audio of the show and save it 
But no one knew to call it a podcast because there were no iPods yet. You would have to go on your desktop computer and, I guess, download the audio of Frank Murphy's show, which was called FM in the AM. Because it was on in the morning, right? Saturday morning. He had the Saturday morning show that nobody else wanted. I said, I'll take it. So I had this show. And I would get on there and I would talk about marshmallow fluff. And we had one of the listeners made me a new marshmallow fluff jingle. They took it. It was a, they had a band. And they took the old classic marshmallow fluff jingle and covered it in a rock band style. And it was awesome. Well, one of the other hosts at the, at the Comedy World Radio Network was Susan Olson from The Brady Bunch. And she had a show. And of course, she didn't. I don't even know how she got into radio. I'll have to think about that for a second. If I give me a second, it's going to be a weird story, but I will come up with it. Because Kira just asked a great question. What made me want to be a radio person? Well, I always wanted to be on. I mean, if you go back early enough in my life, I wanted to be a, a TV person. I wanted to be a game show host. And thank goodness I've been able to do that with East Tennessee PBS and Scholars Bowl. I get to do that. So it's kind of like really a fulfillment of a dream. If I had to say second to improv, uh, doing the, the quiz show on PBS is is extremely gratifying and fulfilling, and I will work really hard to get better. I watch the old shows and cringe so that I can get better the next time we sh we film. But anyhow, so here I am thinking, ooh, I do not have any confidence about my personal appearance. I could do a radio show where you can't see me. Plus, um, I listen to some of the most iconic, fantastic wonderful radio hosts ever in the history of radio were on the air in New York when I was growing up in my formative years. So here I am in eighth grade and seventh, eighth grade and Bob and Ray, Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding had an afternoon show on WOR in New York City. And I wouldn't have discovered them except that my grandparents and my parents listened to the other talk shows on WOR and Bob and Ray was not their taste. It was just weird. It was just a weird show. And I took to it right away because what Bob and Ray would do is they would make fun of radio. They would get on there and do a radio interview with the Komodo Dragon expert. And if you weren't paying attention, it would sound like the most dry, boring interview. But that's what they were making fun of is the Komodo Dragon expert would get on there and say, the Komodo Dragon is the world's largest living land lizard. Find primarily on the island of Kumdar and the Indonesian archipelago. And he would go on and talk about it. And the, and the other host, played by Ray, would get bored and then would follow up with this question. So where do uh, Komodo dragons come from? So whatever Bob had just said as the Komodo dragon expert, Ray would then ask as the next question to pretend as if he hadn't been paying attention. <laughs> so I loved it. And I, they had a thing one time where they said, we're going to have a live studio audience at WOR, 1440 Broadway, New York City, New York. And all you have to do is write in and get tickets. So I'm a kid. I am a kid. I can't go to New York City on my own. But I wrote in, and my mom took me down there, and my sister, who was so bored out of her mind. So my mom and my sister and I are sitting there in the audience for the Bob and Ray show. And there's a bunch of other old people who love Bob and Ray because they'd been around at this point. They had been on the air for probably 30 years at this point. They were established. And... I'm a kid, and I'm sitting in the front row, and my eyes are wide. And I remember being a little bit heartbroken when they um, pretended to serve from the red and white flowing wine taps, which were supposedly on the studio wall, and they just gestured to some of the soundproofing equipment. And <laughs> they take a phone call, and Ray picks up a prop phone and leans back 
and talks into the phone and he's the caller and all of these other things. And I realize, and then, you know, and, and then the interview comes out with Wally Ballou and he's supposed to be out in the field. And Bob puts a nasal tone in his voice and goes, Leibaloo here, pretending to be cut off at the beginning of the segment because that was the running bit. Leibaloo here, live from... And I, but then it occurred to me later that this was genius. I was watching genius happen in front of my very eyes. They were using theater of the mind to create this whole fantasy world that I had bought into because they would say on the show that they had this luxurious theater and a huge organ and... Webley Webster would go and play Jealousy on the organ and all of these crazy things, all of which were fantastic and fantasy, made up, not true. But I bought into it. So now I've seen them do it, and I thought, this is amazing. And I went back and I told my little school friends at um, Iona Grammar School, I said, hey, you know, I went to see the Bob and Ray show, and it was amazing. And they were jealous. They said, how can you do that? I said, well, they had a studio audience, but now they don't anymore. And they said, well, you know, stink on you. So I wrote to Bob and Ray again. And said, hey, I would like to come back. <laughs> Don't take no for an answer. I wrote to Bob and Ray again and said, we would like to come back. I've got these friends who didn't believe me. That uh, yeah, They're kind of like uh, the disciple Thomas. <laughs> they didn't believe me that I saw Bob and Ray in person. Can I please bring them and show them the magic that is Bob and Ray? So they wrote back and said, yeah, come at this such and such a day at such and such a time. And the difference was they were not in the extra studio where the audience had sat. They, they'd put us in, I don't know where we were, in a conference room or in a studio. They had set it up so that the audience could sit there. We were now in the main studio of WOR New York where John Gambling would do Rambling with Gambling in the morning at the U-shaped desk. Well, Bob and Ray would come on in the afternoon and say that they were at the W-shaped desk. And the reality of it was they're at the exact same desk as John Gambling was. It's just the two of them could fit in there because it was that huge of a desk. And they told us to sit in the back corner, and we sat there, and we, there was some other guy there who was a friend of the airborne traffic reporter. And I said, do we have to be quiet? And Bob Elliott says to me, well, I mean, it's okay if you laugh, if, but only if you find it funny. Because <laughs> they were on you know, they, I, we didn't have to force ourselves to be quiet. They, the laughter would have been just fine. So now I'm completely all in on radio. I'm, I'm hooked, line, and sinker on, on radio and the genius of these guys. So that was, you know, uh, I'm now in eighth grade, right? Well, nothing happened for a while. I went to high school and there was no radio station at high school. There was a little TV, you know, inter instructional TV station. So we made, we tried to make some TV shows. There were... And then in college, that's when I was actually on the radio, on the little campus station that you could only hear if you were in the dorm rooms. And that's when I first uh, tried being a DJ. And boy, was I terrible. I have nightmares. Sometimes I have nightmares about my time as a college DJ because I so I did it with such little training that I was – I didn't know how any of it worked. They had these songs on tape cartridges. And I thought when – I didn't know that you weren't supposed to stop them. I thought, well, it's over. I, I better stop the tape. No, no. So the next person who put it in would have heard the last two beats of – some Billy Joel song, and then nothing, and then dead air, because that's not, I did it wrong. I didn't know. So I still have nightmares about those days, about messing up the studio at the college station, but it ultimately didn't matter. So then, um, and I can go on, go on in more detail about how I got into professional radio, but the short answer of it is I was at a college radio station at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and we did a big air band, like air guitar type contest, and I thought it would be cool 
to invite one of the local TV news reporters to come judge it, and maybe they'll bring their cameras. Well, two of them came. I invited as many as I could. A guy named Mike Buchanan, who just died this past week. May he rest in peace. The great Mike Buchanan of WUSA-TV in uh, Washington, D.C. And the other guy was this rookie reporter uh, from the NBC station, WRC-TV, some kid named Steve Ducey, who I think still is working in television. I'm fairly confident that he went on to some uh, success later in life. But Steve Ducey shows up and Mike Buchanan shows up, and they both do stories on me and on this contest on their Friday night feature. And then the next week I get a call from uh, the promotions director at WAVA in Arlington, Virginia, saying, hey, um, can we have the list of contestants who participated in your contest? Because we have a similar contest sponsored by Budweiser, and we're going to lose the money if we don't get some contestants. I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> However, I do need an internship this summer. Can I come down and just run the contest? And they said, yes. And that is how I actually got into radio. So there you go. And then that led to some other things here and there. It led to a, a job on an AM station in Annapolis, led to a job on a somewhere along the way. I think I may have skipped over the part where I worked at a bankrupt station in Herndon, Virginia, which is how I got into wedding DJing because a guy heard me and says, hey, would you want to come be a wedding DJ? I'm listening to you on the AM radio. <laughs> sure, I'll do it because this is bankrupt. I'm not getting paid. So I think I still am working my way back to the Susan Olson Brady Bunch marshmallow fluff story because I think we're getting there. That is how I got into radio. So now uh, I go on and years go by. I work at uh, WAVA in Washington, D.C. for eight years, I think, working my way up through it to the point where I'm the producer for the Donna Mike morning show. And then I move out to Los Angeles to be the producer for the Jay Thomas morning show at uh, Power 106. Um, that's where I met Dave Morales, who uh, is the one who got me to go open the door for me to go see the Batmobile. You know, the, we went and interviewed Dave Morales, interviewed uh, George Barris at the, I keep wanting to say Chuck Barris, but that's a different guy. George Barris, who built the Batmobile. That's how I got to be in Batmobile number one. And all these other crazy things. Then move on. I worked for the Kevin and Bean show for... Uh, for three years at K-Rock, worked for the Mark and Brian show at KLOS for three years. And I kept getting burned out after three years. I'm like, why am I done? What is wrong with this? Because as the producer of a show, it can be frustrating. I describe it as you're the other guy in a bowling alley who sets up the pins and then lets the other people bowl. You never get to actually bowl. And I wanted to bowl. I wanted to go bowling. I didn't want to just keep setting up the pins every day. So... Um, I had an opportunity to go. I, I took a jumped at the first job I could to go into a little tiny station in um, whatever's whatever's just east of Pasadena. I can't even remember Altadena. Might be Altadena. Uh, that um, called Y one hundred seven, and then I got fired from there because they went Spanish. And uh, now I'm out of work for the first time in my radio career. I've worked in radio my entire life up to this point, and I am finally for the first time fired, which has felt weird. Even when I got fired from WAVA because the station was sold, um, I already had the job at Power 106 lined up. I just was technically transferring from the one uh, property in MS Broadcasting to another property in MS Broadcasting. I just changed addresses. So now here I am actually out of work, and this would have been 1999 in Los Angeles, California. And I thought, what am I going to do? I, I interviewed with Ryan Seacrest about going to work for him as a producer for his show. And I was told him, I said, look, Ryan, I, it's 1999. Nobody knows who Ryan Seacrest is. He's just a good DJ at that point. I said, I, I mean, I don't want to be the producer anymore. I've got to be honest with you. Find somebody else who can produce your show. If you need a co-host, 
call me right up. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for that. And so I get, um, finally get this opportunity to go work at this internet radio company, a startup, a startup with um, venture capitalists up in Silicon Valley. This guy who they, oh, he worked at CNBC, Jody something. Jody Sherman, is that what I have Jody Sherman. And uh, he's, he, yes, that's right, Jody Sherman, at, uh, he's, he can get venture capital. And they had this beautiful office up in San Francisco or somewhere up there with these Herman Muller Aeron chairs. And it was really fancy to impress the VCs, which stands for venture capitalists, I learned the hard way. And um, so they all would show up and try to invest. And meanwhile, down in Los Angeles in Marina Del Rey, we had used everything. They had gone and found used office furniture. So we had these janky old file cabinets and office chairs. And they found used microphones. And I think the only thing that were new was the cameras because no, who would have, you know, no one, you didn't have cameras at a radio station. So they were setting up this radio station with the video component. There was a, a psych behind me, some kind of a, it was a gray, I want to call it a green screen, but it was actually a gray screen and it was reflective. And the camera had a ring on it, a blue, as a blue ring. So it would turn the, the reflective screen behind me into a blue screen and they could put in any fake backdrop they wanted. And I was producing during the week, Monday through Friday. I got in as a producer for the show hosted by first Susan Olson from the Brady Bunch and comedian Jeff Wayne, Big Daddy, Big Daddy's Big Daddy Jeff Wayne. They were hired to do a show together by this guy, Kent Emmons, who was an investor in Gatlinburg. Remember that castle in Gatlinburg up the hill from uh, Ripley's Aquarium of the Smokies? Well, Kent Emmons owned that, and it burned down, so I don't know what he's up to now. He's back in L.A. as far as I know. And um, he was my boss. He had hired me to work at this comedy network and said, we're going to put you in there with Susan Olson and Big Daddy Jeff Wayne. And Susan had done a radio show on an FM station called KLSX with Cato Kalin, I think it was. Pretty sure it was Cato Kalin who had nothing going for him except that he knew that O.J. Simpson was guilty, but wouldn't say it on the air. He wouldn't say it. He was there when O.J. came back home and banged on his you know, wall when he was trying to take off the glove or take off the shoes or take off the bloody clothes, whatever O.J. was doing out there. And he wakes Cato Kalin up, and that's Cato Kalin's claim to fame. So anyway, he somehow gets a radio show. I know, right? Along with Susan Olsen from The Brady Bunch who also had no radio experience, but they, they threw them on there in middays, and there they are, now doing a show. And that went away. So Susan gets rehired then to be on this internet network, and she was the most famous person I think we had uh, because the other, act, the other people on it were Brian Whitman, who's a radio talk show host, was doing mornings, um, Big Daddy Jeff Wayne. If you were into comedy, you might have heard of him. You might have seen him perform. Then there was a lady named Beth Lapidus who ran an alternative comedy club, The Uncabaret, somewhere. Ken Ober, anyone remember the late, great Ken Ober? He was the host of Remote Control on MTV. He had the afternoon show, and he was probably the best, one of the most qualified, the most interesting of all of the hosts. He was an actual broadcaster and knew what he was doing. And then um, the insult comic Bobby Slayton, and I don't mean that as a, as a dig. He would admit that he's an insult comic in the line of Don Rickles to the – except – for the modern era, you know, he he makes Don Rickles sound old. Very the, the pit bull of comedy. He had the night show. Bobby Slayton did, and eventually there was some uh, turnover, some churn as people left. Craig Shoemaker came on for a while. He did a pretty good show with Pat Godwin in the afternoons, and Jeff Wayne left, and they bring in uh, a comedian named Alan Havy. I remember seeing Alan Havy in a movie recently as a bit part. It was in the 
what was it called? Uh, Bombshell. He was playing tennis in the movie Bombshell. I'm like, oh, hey, that's Alan Hamey. How about that? So um, they bring him in eventually to co-host with Susan Olsen. And that lasts for a little bit of a while. But I befriend Susan, Ols- Susan Olsen. She's my pal now. And I, you know, would go to her house for some reason. I remember going to her house uh, for something or another. And I was, meanwhile, I had the Saturday show. So I'm producing Havy and Olsen, which I, I came up with the name H2O, Havy to Olsen, as the uh, Monday through Friday show. And then I hosted the Saturday show. But I'm doing my own thing. And I was on this jag, oddly enough, probably around Easter time, about marshmallows and marshmallow fluff. So deja vu, 20 years later, here I am doing it again. And the Marshmallow Fluff Company in Massachusetts, I contact them because I'm having trouble finding Marshmallow Fluff in Los Angeles. It's really hard to find. You can buy the Kraft Marshmallow Cream, which is not the same. It's not, not, not the same at all, no. But Marshmallow Fluff from Massachusetts, the real deal from Durkee Mower in, Marsh, in uh, Massachusetts, that was what I wanted. And I was having a hard time finding it. So I contacted them, because why wouldn't I, and had them uh, – I said I wanted them to send me some, and they did for free. They sent me a case of it. I, I don't know. I can't explain it, but this is how it works sometimes. You, you know, you ask and you shall receive. And we did a bid on it, and I had the rock band make the Marshmallow Fluff, fluff and Nutter jingle for me, and we had a lot of fun. And I had these extra bottles, these jars of Marshmallow Fluff, and I give one to Cindy Brady, a.k.a. Susan Olson, or Susan Olson, a.k.a. Cindy Brady. And she's like, what is this stuff? I never heard of it. And I said, well, first of all, it's awesome. Uh, and secondly, it's just hilarious. And she starts to learn about the history of marshmallow fluff. And she keeps it on her mantle because it's, it's, it's interesting. It's attractive. But she calls me one day. She's upset that it has separated the white part and the – I don't even know how to describe it. I guess the corn syrup and the sugar were starting to separate. And she was freaked out because it didn't look good anymore. So we'll turn the bottle over for a week, turn the jar over, and let the it go the opposite direction. You know, if the corn syrup was settling to the bottom of the jar, I said flip it and let it drain down through the sugar again. And it'll at least look good, which is – it worked fine. So from that day forward, we became good pals because I had saved her <laughs> marshmallow fluff. Well – She's an artist. Susan Olson is an artist, a visual artist, in addition to being an actress who was on The Brady Bunch. So she starts on her computer. I, I don't know what prompted her to do this, but she started referring to herself as the mother fluffer. And she would take famous works of art, for example, you know, with Salvador Dali with the clocks melting or bending. And she would do that, except it was marshmallow fluff, jars of marshmallow fluff. And that was funny. And then she would take like Whistler's mother and replace... Whistler's mother with a jar of marshmallow fluff. And keep going down the list. Think of famous things that she would swap out, um, whomever, you know, American Gothic, except instead of a pitchfork, it was marshmallow fluff, and so on and so on and so on. So she starts selling this marshmallow fluff internet, uh, artwork rather. She starts selling this marshmallow fluff artwork on the internet as mother fluffer. And wouldn't you know it, the Marshmallow Fluff Festival in Massachusetts discovers this somehow and flies Susan Olson to Massachusetts to appear as the Grand Marshal of the Marshmallow Fluff Fest in September in Massachusetts, right at the place, the original location where Marshmallow Fluff was invented all those years ago. And it was all because I gave her a jar of it and told her how to turn it upside down. So if you ever encounter dear, dear Susan Olson, uh, formerly Cindy Brady of the Brady Bunch, tell her that you heard the story 
from the guy who got her started on her marshmallow fluff art career. <laughs> and that's all true. 100% true. Um, so I see... Um, i got a few of my friends are on here watching today, and I want to say thank you very much for watching. But what I love about improv is you could now, Aaron, Cody Campbell, or Bob, Kira, or Frank, you can all get on there and make a comment. You can give me a word, and I'll have to just take it and run with it. It may remind me of a true story, or um, in the case of improv, I may just have to make up a fake story on the spot. In fact, I'll tell you that I went to visit family one time in uh, Maryland, and my daughter had it set up. She says, you need to put my father into your local improv show. They're having a festival. I'm like, what are you, you gotta be crazy. That's, that's not fun. Uh, but she had written to them and said, no, it's his birthday. He's coming to an improv festival in Frederick, Maryland for his birthday, which sounds weird, but that's what I wanted to do. And my daughter contacted them and said, in honor of his birthday, could you let him be in a scene? He knows how to do improv. And, and I've been on the other side of that now when somebody contacts you and says, hey, my son, my mom, my dad, whoever loves improv, or I love improv. Can I be in your show next week as a guest star? You're like, eh, really? In one case, um, there's a woman named Freddie Birdwell who is an actress, and she told me that her son was really good at improv, and she could back it up because she herself is an actress. She knew what she was talking about. So then every time Rusty Birdwell comes into town from South America, he has a pass. We let him do a guest appearance with us at Einstein Simplified. Well, somehow... The folks at this, um, what was it called, the Comedy Pigs in Frederick, Maryland, said that I could come up there. And they, but what you do, and here's a trick, is you you have these certain things that are like audience participation that you really you can't go too badly with it. So they had me come up there to do the audience participation thing. Someone in the else in the audience would shout out a single word, and then I would do a monologue on that word, and then everybody else, excuse me, everybody else would act it out. So I don't even remember what the word was. It was probably something, usually you get words like pineapple and anteater and, you know, aardvark or something like that, platypus. People are always trying to be funny, thinking of the weird animals or the weird fruits. You know, you get whatever. That's what, they, that's what you get. Um, so they say that, and I, I do my little bit, and then the, they saw that I had a little bit more going on perhaps than your average audience member, and they let me be in the rest of that scene, and it was a lot of fun. So that's how improv works is you just start and i think in that case i made up a completely fictional story about pineapples because you just go with it like one time in einstein simplified they gave me the word onion and i went on a true rant about how raw onions are just the worst thing ever terrible terrible things but the um cooked onions are are wonderful you know once you cook an onion and caramelize it whether you have grilled onions or whether you uh have onion rings the best. So that was kind of the jag there, and that was fun. And then people acted that out. So here's a suggestion. It snowed in Michigan? Ugh. How about a story about snow? Boy, do I hate snow. I mean, I hate snow. I am so thankful that we've hardly had any here in Tennessee for the past two years, but I know we're due. I know everyone says every March, well, you know, this is the anniversary of the 1993 blizzard. You know where I was in the 1993 blizzard? I was in the audience of Jay Thomas's sitcom in, in Burbank, Studio City, California. And there's this other famous DJ in the audience named The Grease Man. And he and I are chatting, because why wouldn't I chat with The Grease Man? Like, hey, you're The Grease Man, aren't you? Well, how about a gee? Yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> I said, are you, do you know Jay Thomas? Well, yes, we worked together at the Big Ape at Jacksonville. And I said, do you hear about the snow happening back in uh, 
in March, here in March, back in, in uh, D.C., in New York. Oh, because Greaseman worked at D.C. 101, and I worked at WAVA. Those were rival stations. So we kind of knew each other, knew who each other were. So um, I have hated snow ever since I was a child. And children are supposed to like snow. Kids are supposed to love snow. My kids liked snow. They liked it. They liked playing in it. And, in fact, when we moved them to California, I was relieved. But I remember my son going, I miss the snow. And he was three. I miss the snow. Well, sorry. You you can deal with it now. (laughs) But um, when I was a kid, I remember distinctly uh, being out in front of my house. And I I remember the feeling of being pelted with snowballs. I remember the feeling of my boot getting stuck in a snowbank. It was one of those blizzards when I was a kid. I have to look it up to tell you what year, but this was one of those ones where I'm a kid and the snow is more than half my height, you know, so it's like a three-foot snowstorm probably. And I'm trudging through it on the sidewalk in front of my house in New York, and my boot it stays behind in the snow, but my foot comes out, and I lift it and stomp down into the wet, cold, grotesque, Tesque snow. <sighs> yeah. And I was I was done. I mean, here I am, maybe six years old, and I'm done. I am done with snow for life. Yep. Never liked it. Never liked it. In fact, the last time, prior to coronavirus, the last time I missed Sunday church was because it snowed. It was 1983, and there was a, uh, a big enough snowstorm in the D.C. suburbs that couldn't get out of the driveway. Man, do I hate snow. So, uh, Christmas. <laughs> so there you go. I hope you're happy now. <laughs> now that I've given you a snow story. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I don't miss it. You know what's even worse than snow is ice. I wrecked a car one time driving at home in an ice storm. I was selling, um, rec- this, is, this is how old, long ago this was, record albums, actual vinyl record albums. The, uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller album was brand new at the time. So you can look up and determine that it was December 1982 if you want. But that's what it was. And, um, yeah, I got in a in a wreck and, dang, nabbit. Actually, I think I'm thinking of it. The wreck might have been late. I don't know. That's, and I wrecked the car. My brand-new Ford Escort, which probably then was a different. It was different. I was working at that record store in December of 82 and the next Christmas also. So it was probably the following Christmas because I don't think I bought that car until 83. But, any ah, oh, man, I hate the ice. Ice storms are worse than snowstorms because at least snowstorms, you can see it. You know, I'm going to stay off the road. I'm not going to assume that risk. But with ice storms, you don't necessarily know. You might be driving on it, not realizing that it has frozen over. And next thing you know, you can't stop and poof, you go slamming into three other cars. And, and then more cars slam into you. It's not fun. So I dislike snow and ice. But that does kind of bring up a quick topic. I, I want to check and see how long I've been going here. Uh, how long have I been going? Anyone? Anyone? 43 minutes. Oh, okay. I still got some time. Uh, The whole idea of assumption of risk. You know, we talked about that in the uh, show with Kira Cup earlier today, the Morning in the Mountains show, how no matter what, you're mad. You're mad about either the coronavirus causing all the businesses to be shut down or you're mad about the businesses wanting to reopen and reopening. So either way, you're going to be mad, okay? I'm not trying to make you mad. I'm just acknowledging that you're probably already mad that businesses are closed or that business they're closed or you're mad they're open. Those are the choices, right? Nobody is content about it. So in our world today, 
There's talk about one week from now, the uh, Tennessee stay-at-home order is going to expire, and businesses are allowed to start start reopening on May 1st. And it makes it sound like the whole state's been on shutdown since whenever, April, beginning of April. Well, it hasn't because the quote-unquote essential businesses have been open, right? I have had no problem uh, buying groceries. I've gone to Sam's Club multiple times, put on the mask that I bought from Kira and her mom, and I go and I buy my chicken salad and I buy my bottled water. In fact, I should take a sip of my bottled water. And whatever else that I need, you know, my perishables, my salad, and my fruit, and et cetera, et cetera, at the store. Mm-hmm. So I buy all that stuff, and um, we're fine, right? Now, granted, at the beginning of all of this, it was a little dicey because nobody seemed to grasp the concept of six feet apart. But since then... They've got markers on the floor showing you what six feet is. And a lot of the stores are now putting in the one-way lanes. So uh, you want to go up lane, up the odd lane and down the even lane or whatever it is. I think more and more stores are going with the one-way lanes to help control the the traffic flow. Oh, we, we need more chicken salad, I'm told. Okay. <laughs> is that a hint? You want me to stop on the way home? I thought you were going to go. Sorry, off topic. Uh, talking directly to my wife. So um, stores are, are creating more safety measures. You know, some of them are going to require that you wear a mask to go in and go shopping for groceries. Others are going to require that you use one-way aisles. Others are going to have a counter and make sure that there's no more than, pick a number, 50, 100 people, whatever it is, inside the store at the, at the time. So that's how that works. So we have all those people in the those are safety measures that the store is taking because they don't want to get sued. They don't want you to sue them because there were too many people in the store. They got too close together and you got coronavirus. So my prediction is that we'll have similar things as Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg and Sevier will open up. You know, you'll have to find a way to limit the number of people into a restaurant. You'll have to find a way to separate the tables far enough apart that you can't sneeze on each other, you know, while you're, you know, I suppose – you know, I suppose I eat some of that nasty uh, cilantro, and I have to, and I sneeze because it's disgusting. Like my wife is really allergic to it; it makes her throat close up. But if I were to sneeze and someone was in the was it twelve feet? I think is the sneeze distance. You gotta gotta take precautions of that. So my prediction is that everything we love, whether it be uh, theater or uh, restaurants or theme parks, things like that, I think we're gonna find are gonna become the baseball games of the future. What does that mean? Can we even go to a baseball game because we're all so close together? What I mentioned on the show with Kira earlier today is if you were to still have a ticket stub from a baseball game, you know, minor league, major league, it would say on the back of it that it's a license to use that seat. You're not you're buying a license to the seat. You're renting it from them for the duration of that game. And you're warned that during the course of a baseball game, objects may be thrown or batted into the stands. What? Well, yeah, you're at a baseball game. I mean, it's it's terrible, but every couple of years we hear a story about somebody who gets hit in the face with a foul ball, right? Or a bat breaks and flies into the stands and hits somebody. That happens, unfortunately, uh, I'd say somewhat regularly. I mean, it gets, you know, we hear about it in the news maybe once a year, once every two years, somebody gets it. We certainly hear more often that the guy's carrying his beer and he gets hit by a foul ball and either drops the beer, catches the ball, or drops the ball, catches the beer. You know, we all laugh. But it's the same idea. You know, he can't sue because on the back of the ticket, the license that he purchased, it says you might get hit with a thrown or batted object. 
So, but he assumed the risk. He went to the baseball game anyway, right? It's America's pastime. We all go. We all go to the baseball game and take the risk of getting hit in the head with a baseball. Well, now you might get hit in the head with coronavirus. So what are the risks you're willing to assume? Are you willing to sit two feet away from somebody at a baseball stadium? Probably not. Six feet away? Maybe. Twelve feet away? Sure. So how does that work? How are we going to be able to make enough money to, to sell only every third ticket or every sixth ticket in the stands? You're going to have to have five empty seats between me and you so that there's 12 feet between us or four empty seats, whatever. You know, and can you still make money if you're a theater promoter? How do you uh, book a concert? How do you rent out a theater? How do you rent the Tennessee Theater? With what's that? Like, um, you know, maybe around 1,800 seats, right? But if you can't put 1,800 people in there because they'd be packed right on top of one another. So if you can only put one-third of that, 600 people in there, and so it's one seat filled, two seats empty, one seat filled, two seats empty. You know, can you, if you only sold 600 tickets to the Tennessee Theater, you wouldn't rent the Tennessee Theater. If you only knew that your, your gig could sell 600 tickets, you wouldn't bother. It's too expensive to rent the Tennessee Theater for only 600 people. You can't make, can't make your money back. So a lot of things are going to have to change. The theaters are going to have to say, well, we're going to lower the rates so that you can sell, you know, the capacity is now, let's say, 600. Or uh, you're going to have to sign a waiver if, before you go in to any place, maybe. You'll have to sign a waiver. Same as if you, um, you know, went on some thrill ride, some dangerous thrill ride. Imagine a dangerous thrill ride of some kind, you know, whether it would be a motorcycle ride or a, you know, bungee jumping or whatever you know, even zip lining, you probably have to sign a release form that says, I understand that I'm going on an exciting adventure and that I run the risk if I don't pay it, if I don't, you know, clip on my safety gear or something could go wrong, I could get hurt. I could break my leg or worse, you know, but you still go because it's fun. So where does that put you in the line in the world of COVID-19? You have to decide, hmm, how much risk am I willing to take for myself and for my family? Do I have anybody here who has a pre-existing health condition, heart disease, smoker? Pick a thing. You know, oh, no, they should not go. You should not go to a restaurant. We're going to get carry out like we've been doing, and we're going to have a meal at home. Or we're going to cook. Remember cooking? Well, of course we do now. <laughs> well, they saying that home economics is going to make a comeback. We're all going to have to learn how to cook and clean again because <laughs> we can't go to the, the restaurants anymore. So... And I know Tim Coleman just popped in. He works at Sweet Fanny Adams. Tim, we're talking about how do you do a show and still do social distancing if you know the capacity at Sweet Fanny Adams is about, what, 200? And if only you could have half of that, can you still make money with, with every other seat empty? Or more likely, can you still make money with every third seat filled and every two seats empty? So if there's only 200 seats in the theater, one-third of that would be, let's say, 70-ish, 65 seats. You know, Can you s still make enough money to survive being only allowed to sell 65 tickets and have people every other, you know, every third seat. You know, is that financially feasible to have the theater capacities reduced by two-thirds so that there's two empty seats for every one person? So, all right, so I, risk assumption is the thing. You go to a baseball game, you might get hit with a baseball. You go to the beach. I like to go to a beach where it says danger, no lifeguard, no lifeguard on duty. But I'm okay to go to a beach without a lifeguard. I mean, I know how to swim. I am competent enough to look at the water and say, well, that looks rough. I'm not going in. You know, I remember uh, my family and I were visiting Lake Michigan, and the sign clearly said, the water's too rough, stay out. 
It was very windy, and there was huge waves coming off of Lake Michigan. But sure enough, there were, I'll call them idiots, but they were daredevils surfing on Lake Michigan in the, where were we? Um, oh, it's, I guess, is it Grand Rapids or Grand? There's two places. One of them, they both start with Grand. And we're at one of those, whichever one is the one that's actually at the beach. <laughs> and uh, there were people in there surfing in Lake Michigan. I thought, that's crazy because they're getting very close to the, the rocks. So they could get dashed against the rocks. But they didn't while we were there. They assumed that risk on their own, even though there were clear warnings that they shouldn't do it. So, of course, are you going to have that situation with coronavirus? Are people going to take the risk even though they shouldn't? You know, as somebody who's a lifelong smoker and maybe has had a little emphysema, going to Grand Haven is where we were. Thank you. Uh, not Grand Rapids, Grand Haven. If you're, a, let's say, a lifelong smoker, are you going to run the risk of going out to eat or going to the theater or going to Dollywood or going anywhere uh, knowing that someone might cough on you and you could then really be in danger? So a couple things here. Uh, Chris Payton lives by Lake Michigan, and they're in the water all the time, regardless of the warnings. Of course they are. I saw them with my own eyes. And then uh, Tim Coleman from Sweet Fanny says they are going to try to reopen and limit the audience and space them out throughout the theater. So that's kind of what I'm thinking is if you do the six feet thing, each chair is approximately three feet wide, right? So you have to have one person and then two empty chairs and then another person. And the uh, question is, can families sit together? You know, if if already quarantined with my wife, you could let the two of us sit together, right? And then have two empty seats on either side of us, maybe? You know, that would be uh, certainly something to consider there. Um, if you can make that work, that would be cool. Um, you know, as long as you can make money, as long as you can still make money by only having 60 people in the theater instead of 200, which I guess when you have, it depends on the theater. You know, let's be real, that Sweet Fanny Adams is open hundreds of days per year. So on average... They don't have you don't have a sellout every night. You have sellouts on big holiday weekends. Um, so on average, you know you'd have you know maybe half capacity. You'd be perfectly fine with that. When we do Einstein Simplified Improv shows, if if we get fifty people, we're thrilled. When we get a hundred people, we're ecstatic. When we get one hundred and fifty people, we're over the moon. You know, but it, it varies on depending on whether it's spring break or not. And uh, Tim says, "Sweet Fanny, they're uh, planning to open wait until June." And that's another thing we're talking about. You know, like I said, if you're mad about everything being closed or you're mad about everything being open, those are the choices, it seems like, nobody in the middle. So if you're still mad about if – you're, if you're, let's say you're mad about things being open. When things start to open next week, a week from today, the order expires. So a week from tomorrow is May 1st. If you're mad about that and that things are going to start to reopen, understand that places like theaters and theme parks, they, can't, they have to wait longer. They have to kind of feel it out and see how it's going to go. The first places that will go back in business, the first non-essential businesses to be back, will be the you know the barbershops and hair salons because everybody wants to get their hair cut, and they'll have to take enormous precautions. But these are people who are licensed by the state anyway, and they have some basic understanding of cleanliness. You know, There's a reason why they have that jar of barbicide. They have a basic concept of killing germs. So they'll space people out and they'll stagger the appointments and they'll do all the things to prevent having emphysema person and potential uh, coronavirus person in the same room at the same time. They'll have to space those folks out. And uh, you're in the front line. If you're the barber or you're the hairstylist, you're putting yourself at risk in order to make a living because you're going to be there. Now, I, ideally, you're behind me. So if I do cough because of the 
oak catkins, which are disgusting, the oak pollen in the air. Uh, at least I should be coughing away from you as my hairstylist, right? Um, so th thus what that'll open first and then the restaurants, the restaurants that are hurting and you know trying to survive with carryout business will start to have sitting down again, but again with spacing and far enough apart and taking the safety precautions and wiping everything down. But these are going to drive the costs up for a lot of restaurants. So do expect that some of your favorite restaurants will probably go out of business. And some of your favorite hair salons might probably go out of business. I hate it. But if you're a business owner, you have to look at it and go, you know, I've, I've lost all this money for the past couple of months. And now I have to increase my cleaning costs and my staffing costs and my limit my potential income, limit my income of customers. So some of them are, are unfortunately going to go away. I, I wish that were not the case. But um, I think it's just it's a truth bomb. It has, somebody has to say it. Uh, Chris Payton says he appreciates things opening in June, waiting until June with uh, cleaning the building as needed. And all right, there's a little bit of hype on this. Let's just think about this for one brief second. A slight bit of hype. I saw a guy on the news last night who's got a hotel here in Sevier County, and they were doing a wonderful job of deep cleaning the hotel, which probably needed it anyway. <laughs> but, you know, if the hotel's been vacant uh, for a month, uh, the, any coronavirus that was in there would have died by now. So the, the game is now not to, uh, you know, the game is now to continue cleaning. It's, it's clean as you go. The, the moment that guest number one walks in there, that's when the game starts. You know, the fact that you, you cleaned an empty hotel, good. Of course you should. It makes sense, right? You can paint it too while you're at it if you want. But we're not talking about the, the germs would have died by then. Everyone tells us that you can, if you're worried about your Amazon.com delivery, leave it outside for one day, and it's definitely anything on it will be dead by one day, probably less, but at least, you know, we know for that. So the, the hotel germs, probably dead by now. The theater germs, hey, they're all dead by now, probably. We assume this. We're told by science. And the um, so then the cleaning really begins once you have live human beings back in there again, bringing in their their spittle and their normal cold germs and their coronavirus germs and their flu germs and whatever else you got. You know, that's when the cleaning has to the deep cleaning has to continue. And that's where the costs start going up and up and up because you got to do that same thorough cleaning every time a guest comes into your establishment. So the question is on you then. What level of risk are you willing to take? Baseball game level risk where you might get hit in the head. The odds of you getting hit in the head are pretty slim. Or higher risk, like surfing very dangerously close to the rocks at Lake Michigan. You know, yeah, maybe you're a great surfer. Maybe you'll get away with it. Maybe, God forbid, you'll get distracted and, you know, a pretty girl walks by and what? And next thing you know, you're broken legs in the rocks. Uh, you know, what level of risk are you willing to take? It comes down to everything. Driving here on the interstate in a thunderstorm, there's supposed to be thunderstorms on my drive home. Am I going to take the interstate or should I take side roads so I don't have to worry about hydroplaning? You know, that's everything in life is, is the level of risk that we decide to take upon ourselves or not. And we are asked to take now make a lot of decisions in the coming months and years because this will be around for a while. I'm going to have to think about how am I going to survive? Am I going to be a hermit and stay home and work from home? Which is great if you can, but if you can't and you're quote-unquote essential or you're quote-unquote formerly non-essential but actually in reality essential to the rest of us because we need a haircut or we need whatever you do for us, you know, then uh, God bless you and thank you for, for going back to work. 
Um, let's see, what's Chris saying? Um, hotels that have breakfast? Yeah, probably won't have food available because how do you have that out there? When I go to Sam's Club, the whole cafe area with the pizzas and the salads, that's gone. It's just closed. The chairs are gone. The tables are gone. You know, I used to joke about going to lunch at the club. Well, I can't anymore. <laughs> doesn't happen. All right. Well, I think we've made it. I'm pretty sure I've made it to the 60-minute mark. Yes. Oh, almost exactly. So uh, I'll wrap this episode because Kira's got to come in here and do the after-after podcast or the after-podcast podcast or the after-show podcast podcast. I don't know. Kira's up next to do another one of these live podcasts here in the room. So also, by the way, thank you to Kira for making the beautiful graphics for the After Show podcast with Frank Murphy, and uh, we appreciate that. We're doing it as a thing. I'll be here every Thursday for this after we do the live Morning in the Mountains show. So thank you for the comments. Thank you for letting me rant and rave. And Michelle Allen Yinglin, if you're still watching, um, I did the Cindy Brady Marshmallow Fluff story kind of near the (laughs) beginning-ish. I wish I could tell you. It's probably halfway through. All right. Well, that was the show. Uh, Do listen to us on your podcasting apps. You can hear it that way. And do also join us on Facebook Live so that you can do live commenting and uh, and watch me sit here under the hot lights and uh, enjoy. Oh, Kira Cup Show, says Chris Payton. And that is exactly what is coming up next, the After Show podcast with Kira. And now... I am, uh, you know, I can run a radio station with my eyes closed, and I have to look down here and try to figure out which button I stop first. Is it the record button? Nope. The stream button. I think I stopped the stream button first and then the record button. So there we go. Thank you again for listening. I'm Frank Murphy. You can find me on all the socials at frankmurphycom, F-R-A-N-K-M-U-R-P-H-Y-C-O-M. And we do especially appreciate you liking and following Mountain Fun Life and Kira and all the rest of us. Rich Haley is here tomorrow with Sports in the Smokies and then the post show podcast and then on uh, tuesday it's santa and mrs claus wednesday it's jim and james with the entertainment show and then next thursday kira and me once again with the uh, morning in the mountains thanks so much for watching thanks for supporting mountain fun life we appreciate you we're here to guide your adventure in and around the smoky mountains i'm frank murphy i'll talk to you again next week